0: Welcome to the RODcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of The Broadcast. My guest today has a truly inspiring story and is known for developing some of the most luxurious flats and houses in prime London, regularly breaking the pound per square foot ceiling values in the early 2000s. He's developed hundreds of millions of pounds worth of high-end residential property and has sold and let units to the rich and famous over the years. So it gives me great pleasure and a big thanks to have Paul Roshan on the show. Welcome, Paul. Good morning, Rod. How are you today? I am good. It's, uh, I'm in a rainy, cold London, and I think you're in a much sunnier, nicer place. So where, where are you now? I'm just in my bear at the moment, where it's about 23 degrees and the sun is shining. Okay, well, thanks for making me jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show. I guess the best place to start is a bit of background to you and how you got into property. You've been doing this quite a while. So how, how and when did you start?
0: Well, it was really my whole family was involved in property. So from my grandfather down to my father, then my, my uncle and my mother as well. And my uncle and my mother were developing around areas like Tooting and Wandsworth. And I started with them slowly, slowly, slowly building up. And, um, you know, as time went on, I thought what they're doing, is not excellent. I thought they're good developers, but they were bringing kind of like antique finishes into like contemporary houses. And it didn't, for me, it didn't go.
1: What sort of time was this? What, what, what year roughly?
0: We're talking from 1998, I would say, is when I was working just for the first year or two with my uncle.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then I went and bought a flat in Tutsi, um, which was 90,000 pounds. And I put a 10,000 pound deposit down. Well, I actually got the £10,000 deposit from my uncle and spent 30000 refurbishing it over the space of two years. But I was working in the markets as well. So I was working in Bermondsey and Portobello, selling paintings oh, and right. saving up, <laughs> saving up to try and have enough money to do up this flat. Did it up eventually and then sold it for 180,000. So it stood me in 120 and I made 60 grand. And I thought this is better than being at the markets and in, in the rain sticking up a tarpaulin at six a m in the morning, you know?
1: Absolutely. And for for those listeners that don't know where Tooting is, it is um actually down the road from where I am now in southwest London. So I know I know Tooting and Wandsworth very well. I was actually I was born and brought up in Wandsworth. So really nice to hear hear some of these um these kind of areas come up for me. Sorry, I, I thought I'd just better get that in there. <laughs>
0: You know, can I just add to that as well? You know, the, when I was living in that area in the beginning, I was living in an Anglo-American laundry. So it was like a, it was like a loft apartment. And um, we used to go down every every weekend and watch the stock car racing on a Sunday, smashing into each other, which was great. And then go dog track on the, on a Saturday and bet on the dogs. It used, yeah. it used to be really good fun. And
1: that, and that, funnily enough, that's Wimbledon dog track, which is now being, well, is in the process of being redeveloped to... Wimbledon Stadium by Galliard Homes and has, I mean, it's a fantastic development, but it looks like they're putting a football stadium in and, and lots and lots of homes. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's changed a lot since then.
0: So, so basically, when I, when I bought the first flat in Tutti, um, sold it and then thought, well, I want to move more central. So went into Chelsea Harbour, managed to get a one-bedroom flat there, um, refurbished that one and then sold that one and made about 50 grand. And I thought, hold on a minute, this is a good business. This is a very, very good business. <laughs> so I thought, what do I need now? I need, I need good investors. I need to, to like push this where I can get into prime central London market. And yeah, I, I started going out a lot. Started going to nightclubs, bars, restaurants, socializing, and I met some really nice, interesting people. You know, uh, one guy, he's. Uh, Jewish chap, he owns uh, all the best nightclubs in London, you know, fantastic guy, really good personality, and he showed me a lot of things. And there was another guy who's Kuwaiti, and, you know, he's a very shrewd businessman, and he invests in stocks and shares. And I said to him, why don't you invest some money into, you know, Prime Central London developments? So one guy uh, put 250000 in, which is the Jewish chap, and the other chap, the Kuwaiti, put about a million pounds in to the deals I was doing. So that gave me a, a good start.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, um, and, this, and this was what, around sort of the late 90s, was it? I would say no, I would say probably
0: 2001, 2002. You know, I remember one of the deals I did was in Sloan Street and um, you know, I think it was Investec Bank funded it about 90% and we're just about to buy it. And then obviously, I think it was 2001, then obviously, obviously the, the 9-11 happened and we obviously chipped the price because the market was dipping then.
1: Yeah.
0: So we got a good deal, bang on Sloan Street, literally near Harrods, and refurbished this flat and sold it, made a good profit on it. And I thought, God, I've just made myself 350 grand. I feel like I've got financial independence now. This yeah. is amazing.
1: What drove you to kind of target that prime London? going kind of from, from southwest and, and nothing bad against, against that southwest London. But what, what drove you into Prime London? Was it just because the values were bigger? You saw you were doing the same amount of work maybe for bigger profits. What, what was it? I saw, I, saw,
0: I saw other developers making um, a lot more money. Mm-hmm. And they, they were buying you know, easier projects. Where I say easier, flats, where you're just doing a straightforward internal refurbishment. Rather than having to do a massive house in Wandsworth for six, seven thousand square foot with a basement, and yeah. not getting the returns, and obviously it's more more liquidity. There's a lot more obviously wealthier buyers, and the profit margins. You know, if you get it right, definitely a lot higher in prime central London.
1: Really, really interesting comment that um, I harp on a lot about looking at return versus risk, but also effort, especially when you're doing this stuff. And and you don't if you can do the same amount of effort into something that's higher value gives you back the same sort of margins but in terms of the amount of pounds you get in your back pocket is more then that, that can often be be better if, if the risk doesn't change as well. Um, really really interesting stuff so go on Paul sorry I've, I've cut in. I keep That's alright That's <laughs> all right. I'll let you
0: off this time. <laughs> um, so yeah I was, I was sort of making 400 pounds a week just selling paintings in the markets and so I started doing these properties and I thought yeah this is good so socialised, networked, which is key, and then have got some funding to be able to, how can I say it? I think fast track is the word, yeah. um, it into the developments. Um, and then slowly over time, built up, did two more deals with um, my, my Jewish friend, mm-hmm. and then I ended up doing probably 25, 30 flats with uh, the Kuwaiti. Massive. Um, you know, over a seven-year period, which okay. was pretty good going, you know, in time.
1: Really good. So a couple of questions on that firstly um in terms of raising that that money from from the kuwaiti chap and the um jewish guy how did you raise that was that was it as a jv so they were putting in the equity um and then you i think you mentioned investec put in the debt on one of the deals was that was that how it was or was it as a management contract how how did you structure that
0: yeah, I mean the way the way it was structured was um, basically I had JV partner. So, for example, the Kuwaiti would be my JV partner. We would have a uh, offshore company BVI, yep. and um, we would have a management contract UK for to pay tax on. Yeah, and it was basically BVI company administrated from Guernsey or Jersey um, with the directors. And this is this is how it was because I'm domiciled in Iran and my yeah. partner is from the in Kuwait, so this is how we had it structured, and this was our tax advice at the time.
1: Yeah, and obviously tax advice 50, 50. will change depending on what the times are and things like that, so for any listeners thinking, let's we'll set up in, uh, <laughs> in Guernsey quick and do that, it's obviously very dependent on your circumstances and what is happening uh, around the time, because remember this was sort of 20 odd years ago. Um, really interesting, thanks Paul. and then one other point you mentioned was when you were doing the property in Sloan Street, um, I think nine eleven had had just happened people don 't often talk about how nine eleven impacted the property market because I think some of the um, lower value markets weren't hit too bad, but certainly prime was. Do you, do you just want to mention something about that? What what,
0: what was it, was, it, it, was, it, was, it was hit. Um, it was hit badly for, but not for a long period of time. I would say for about up to five six months. Yeah, yeah. You know, as we'll come on to later. But two thousand and eight was where I've never seen anything like a crash like that before yeah. in yeah. my life
1: yeah <laughs> so so moving on then so you you've got to the stage where you've found two really good jv partners who are quite clearly quite wealthy you've structured sure. it um the partnerships in a in a really tax efficient way and you're buying now quite a lot of very high value prime london property what what are the kind of areas we're talking about i'm guessing these are Knightsbridges, Notting. nottingham this, uh...
0: Yeah, just a golden triangle. So Knightsbridge, you know, Chelsea, Belgravia, Holland Park, um, Kensington, all the prime areas of London. Yeah. And, you know, we built up over that, say,
1: seven-year period around about 100 £120 million portfolio, of property. And you were holding this portfolio rather than selling all the units? Um, we were selling. People wanted to buy some of them. And if there were good prices,
0: we would sell. So I'd say we probably sold about 30% and then rented 70%. And did,
1: and did you go into these deals thinking our primary exit is we want to hold on to them? Or did you go in thinking we just want to do them up and then we'll see what what the options are? You know, what I was thinking was primarily I want to just
0: do them up, rent them out and build a portfolio up of, say, 40, 50, 60 flats. And then I wanted to actually build a portfolio up with my partner of about 500 million yeah. and then sell it off to a um, you know, hedge fund fund. Yeah bank institution mm-hmm. on a decent yield and nice prime central London portfolio which I was going to in 2008 to Lehman Brothers which was under under offer for 120 million our portfolio wow. and um, obviously Lehman's collapsed yeah our borrowing was circa 68 million so we will come out with about 57 million ish on that deal
1: but it's all about timing Rod it's yeah. all about and, and do you know what that is again you're coming out with some absolutely brilliant kind of one liners here it 's all about timing and, and people you talk to a lot of kind of maybe not i don 't want to use the word naive, but i 'm going to use it because i can 't think of anything else but some some investors maybe a bit new to the game who have been taught it's not, it's not uh, timing the market it's a bit time you spend in the market, but really, when you're dealing with leverage, it is all about the timing because it's all about timing
0: you know you've got, have, you've got to be buying right you've got to have the right product something that people obviously like to buy or rent and timing is key And mm. like my grandfather said he says it's all about timing you've got to buy right you make your money when you buy it yep.
1: yeah now no really really interesting point so okay so now we i guess we're, we're coming up to the dreaded kind of 2008 you, you you've built this brilliant portfolio of prime london flats You've sold some, you're renting, I mean, you're renting to the likes of kind of, I know you got Chelsea football bosses, you had um, actors and and, yeah. and, and and really the, the, the rich and famous. Um, we had so the, the creme de la creme, <laughs> Rod, <We're> renting <laughs> the properties and buying the
0: properties. And we were living the creme de creme life as well, good lifestyle.
1: And where were you living at this point? I'm guessing around that, those sort of areas or... Did you, did you well, see? you know, I'm trying not to
0: boast now because that was a very good era of my life. <laughs> but there's, I had a choice of about 40 flats to live in at the time. So, you um, know, I was living in um, a penthouse in Chelsea Harbour. I was trying to decide between a penthouse in Chelsea Harbour or a big lateral flat in Kensington and Holland Park. Hmm. Both, they were both very, very nice. And I couldn't decide. and I thought, you know what, what am I going to do with a six bedroom flat right next to Holland Park when I could be in a penthouse in Chelsea Harbour overlooking the river? So that's what I went for at the time.
1: First world problems. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> so, okay, so then, so then what happened? Well,
0: I, start, I, I sort of started to try and be clever because I started thinking to myself, you know, there's less and less deals out there in Prime Central London right now. Okay, around 2007, 2008. I then went out to, um, to Surrey. Big mistake. I went out to Surrey and bought some some large houses out there or land.
1: Around sort of Weybridge area, is that, when you've got the George's hill? Yeah, St. George's
0: Hill, and also in uh, Coon Park in Kingston as well. And so, yeah, I was...
1: And I'm just gonna pick up on a point you said earlier, where you said, I'd rather be refurbing really high-end, high-value flats than doing a 6,000, 7,000 square foot house in Wandsworth. Is that the problem you found with Surrey, and, and, and what the issue was, or was there other, other, other issues there?
0: You know what, the problem with the Surrey was I always like to get in before everybody else gets in. So for example, when I got into Chelsea Harbour, I was buying at £400 a square foot, £500 a square foot. When I got into Coombe Park, I was the first one to really start developing their big houses. And, you know, I'm trying to like step in just before the market starts to rise in those areas. And I started developing a huge house there, and then the crash happened. Basically, it just really happened within two or three weeks. Of this crash, and it was, you know, I just bought a big house and I just bought a big piece of land as well in Coon Park, and probably released about five five million pounds worth of my uh, of my money into these deals. Mm-hmm. So it was more of a case of timing rather than you know being in that area, but the timing was completely wrong, and I couldn't finish the house because I didn't have enough equity and the bank wouldn't back me to yeah. finish the house. So I had to bring an investor in to finish the house. I took a small profit share out of it. And I also sold my land in Coombe Park, but made a million pound loss. So the whole Coombe Park and St. George's Hill experience has been a dreadful experience for me. And I won't develop out there again. And what year was that? Um, That was 2008 when the crash happened. in,
1: In the thick of it, really, you
0: know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was developing 2008, and then the crash happened, I think it was in September. And I'd already bought that.
1: And what made you want to go to those areas from kind of Chelsea just because you fancied a change or you, or you felt that they were the next kind of rising markets?
0: Yeah, I think that by, by 2007, 2008, everybody was a property developer. You had their grandmother, the mother, you know, everybody was trying to develop. So finding deals in central London in 2007, 2008 was very difficult. So yeah. I thought, right, let's step out. Let's go and do some stuff in some George's Hill. Let's go and do something in Coon Park let's find some nice affluent areas and try and make some good money out there. And that, then I think a lot of people followed and did the same thing. Cause when I was trying to do the St. George's Hill house, they basically, there was about 40, 50 houses on the market at the same time. Mm. So a lot of developers did the same thing.
1: Very much how I felt about London in around 2014. I just couldn't find anything that, that, that stacked up for me and, and had to really look at different, different areas. So talk to us about what happened then in terms of, your portfolio in 2008, you had an offer from Lehman Brothers to buy this very high-end, luxurious kind of residential portfolio in, in prime London, and you, you probably thought, hey, things are, things are, things are going great, and then, and then the crash happened. So, so how did that affect you and your business? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the offer came out, they were looking to buy it, and then within a few
0: days later, the, the, the market literally just tanked. And they were obviously, you know, the, the bank that was like in the headlines yep. for, for going bust. I think it was just being unlucky. But you if you want all the gory details, I will give them to you. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I, know, I know it's not nice to talk about, but I just think I think listeners want to uh, will get a lot from understanding kind of how things went wrong so that they can maybe use that going forward. I was, I
0: was leveraged at about 80% throughout my portfolio. Um, yep. Rates were around 6 7% at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when the property market dropped, um, it was literally 20%, 30%, 20%, I would say. So I was at 100% gearing. So I had banks calling me up saying, Core, you need to stick in another 25 grand, 100 grand, 200 grand. And when you've got 40 flats and you're trying to prop up a portfolio like this, you need to leave maybe five, six million pounds in your bank account to prop up a portfolio of this size. Yeah. And I hadn't done that. I left, you know, I don't know how much I left, but not enough from the bank. And I was continually buying properties. So I left myself short. Mm. If I managed to hold on and keep those properties and keep the bank, I mean, the banks were, some of the banks were reasonable. Some of them wanted to sell straight away.
1: Mm. And
0: they took big losses. They took two, three, four million pound losses on some of the assets, which I think looking back in hindsight, they should have, they should have worked with me to try and keep these assets so we can make money.
1: Yeah, certainly the behaviour of of some of those banks at that time was, um, well, was was pretty awful. Certainly with people like RBS and, and things like that who who just said, right, you breached your loan to value covenant, therefore you've got 21 days to to pay us back, or we're taking over that property and liquidating it. And and obviously all they care about is getting their debt back. And even in those times, if they can get 50 pence on the pound for their debt they're probably happy to just do that and, and get rid of it, which doesn't help, doesn't help the, uh, the developer or the, the investor much, does it?
0: You know, you know the, way, the way they were, though, the banks, they used to be like these me hampers at Christmas, take me to Wimbledon, to boat shows, to, you, know, you know, go out to Cannes, whatever. Everything was paid for. Banks love you when you're doing well. When it all turned sour, oh, I couldn't believe, honestly, some, the way some of the banks treated me, like I was some sort of criminal and it's not my fault I didn't cause a 2008 crash mm. it wasn't me uh, but I was treated like uh, it was uh, you know one guy said to me I can't say which bank it was he said you know what I'm going to take everything from you I'm going to take absolutely everything and you're going to be working in McDonald's for the rest of your life is <laughs> 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 I'm going to make sure I take absolutely everything I was just thinking wow
1: uh, uh, there's a, there's that saying, isn't there, about banks? Is they'll give you an umbrella, and as soon as it starts raining, they'll take it away. Um, yeah, or something along those lines. So, so I mean, that must have been a brutal period for you. H- how did that kind of affect you? Um, I mean, how did it affect your drive? Because you were obviously a passionate, driven, enthusiastic person who was going out building a portfolio. How, how did I mean that? that must have had taken a toll.
0: Can I just, say, can I just add something which I, for, sorry, I forgot to say, I'll answer your question. Um, but banks were selling swap rates like Mars bars. They don't explain the swap rates correctly. They explain it in about 30 seconds. And suddenly you're into this swap rate that you don't really understand. And you just wanted to get your loan. You want to move on. It's like a domino effect. So we we're refurbishing properties, we we're refinancing, taking more money out, doing the next one. As soon as banks stopped refinancing and lending money, then the whole domino effect happened, where you know got into trouble because we couldn't keep refinancing. That was the problem. Mm. So these 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 banks were selling swap rates, and and the rates were high. And when you come out these swap rates, you had huge penalties. You know, I uh, just think the way some of the banks conducted themselves and their the, the and the way they you know sold these swap rates was incorrect. They weren't explained properly.
1: Mm-hmm. And what and what what uh, what did you learn from that in terms of how, like what you look at now <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a mortgage document or a, or a lending document? It, are, are there specific things that you're really concerned about and looking for straight away?
0: So, the way I suggest to people, you know, if you're in study up in property or getting into property, if you're going to sign a PG, sign a minimal PG. Don't sign a PG that's going to be, you know, like I did, about 30, 40 million pounds worth of PGs. You know, that's, that's key, I would say. Uh, what else? Swap rates. I mean, all, you know, look at the rates, look at the interest charges, everything is very important.
1: Yeah. Look at essence and the variable rate that they go on to, penalties, things like that. Yeah. And it's yeah. interesting what you've just said about signing PG. I spoke to someone who, who had a similar story in 2008, um, and, and they just said to me, um, Rod, whatever you do, never sign a PG. And my response at that time was, well, I haven't got a huge bank balance like you and big assets um, like this person who had hundreds of millions and I think billions, actually. And I said, how do I go about having that bargaining chip of not being able to do a PG? And he said, look, there's always a way. It just means you might have to lower your loan to value. It might mean you have to get more equity investment and give away a share of the risk and reward or even if you're starting on development look at what the pg is for is it for the whole amount of the debt or is it for 20% of the debt or is it for just cost overruns and it, and it was just about making sure you it's not necessarily don't do it it's making sure you understand it and what the implications are of, of if you're if you're signing away pg and i think i think certainly um, with what's going on now that's that's very interesting uh for people to to take note of i i i think
0: what what you what you asked me as well before was how how did i motivate myself well having four young children um motivates you
1: yeah yeah
0: uh, being able to you know you, you have to go out and work you have to go and make the money you've got a family um, it's a lot of stress and it calls me you know i was split up with my my wife at the time but you just got to be strong. You got to be strong. I mean, I know five, six property developers who were in the same sort of situation as me, who unfortunately couldn't handle the situation and they committed suicide, you know, literally five or six. And it was in the news, you know, I didn't know all of them. I knew one or two. Yeah. But, you know, some people can't handle being so successful and then losing everything. Mm-hmm. And you just have to, you have to just be strong and deal with it yeah. and fight back. You don't want to be a loser. So you're going to keep fighting back. And think, that's what I've done. And that's what I'm doing.
1: I think, I think one of the, um, the phrases you said to me before when we spoke was, you were in a lifestyle where you were having champagne and caviar and it turned into beans on toast very, very quickly. <laughs> and it just kind of gives, it gives you a picture of how things, kind of, how, how things move so fast. Fair play to you for for what, for what you 've done and how, how you 've come back from that so let 's talk a bit about what happened after two thousand and eight then what happened once you realized the banks were calling in these loans, how did you react to that, and what did you have to do?
0: Well, I scampered off as fast as I could to Gloucestershire to my to my barn um, in Gloucestershire, where it was peaceful, and all I could see was sheep and cows, and I could just get away from everybody and not see anybody and just had to deal with the fact that people were trying to call in loans. I had to sell some of the flats off. You know, it was a lot of stress and, and aggravation. And many people wanted to buy my portfolio. A lot of people. And unfortunately, I went with the wrong horse. And these people said they're going to buy it. Right at the last minute, they didn't perform. So that spent a lot of my time trying to sell this portfolio to get some money out of it. Mm. Um, it was a very, as I said, very stressful time. And the banks were pressurizing me all the time pressurizing me. As I said, some of the flats I let go, gave the keys back to the bank, some of them I sold off. And then I started to think to myself, well, what, what am I gonna do now? Because the liquidity is low. I don't have that much money now. I, um, I started developing again. So again, socializing, um, met an investor from Monaco. He invested with me. We did a nice penthouse flat in Holland Park. Mm. Um, so again, involved in the house in St. George's Hill, nice big house there. I then I going a
1: touch St. George's Hill.
0: <laughs> that was that. Uh, that was yeah. That was uh, that was the only time I did St George's Hill. It was after the crash. Yeah, that's the one I did St George's Hill.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then what else? And then I'm private equity firm in Mayfair, bought in a Middle Eastern bank. We did a nice six apartment scheme in Mayfair, which I was involved with in designing, and uh, I, I found the project as well and put the team together. But I wasn't involved in the project all the way through.
1: And and so with with these what was your offering to these investments? Was it that you've got the skill set, you know the area well, you're great at finding these deals and actually operating them and developing them out? Um, how, how did you structure those deals? Because obviously you, you mentioned liquidity was, was pretty non-existent at the time. So I imagine you had to go out and, and everything was private money really from the yeah. the equity. So how, how did you structure some of those?
0: Well, because obviously I would have had bad credit from this, um, from this situation that I, that I was in in 2008. So I had to use investors and get money from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I didn't have that much liquidity. So they were putting the money in. They said, right, you know, your track record, Mr. Roshan, is, you know, pretty good. Yeah, you've done a lot of properties. Uh, we see you've got the experience. Um, I'm good at finding deals as well. Mm-hmm. Very good at finding deals in central London and you know this is how it all happened really based on based on the cv of experience that i've had Mm. but they were funding the deals and i was getting profit shares
1: yeah okay great and um so in terms of people listening how how to kind of i suppose if you have an issue where you you struggle to to raise debt to rate to get money from the banks then this is one way that you found worked really well when you were in that situation and the credit your credit your credit file was maybe not the best at the time. You went out and just looked at private money and, and showed them what you could offer and showed your skill set and how it could benefit both parties. And obviously, in exchange for that, they're putting the money in. You're giving up a bit more reward, but it's uh, it it's certainly seemed to work pretty well. And I've seen some of those um, those developments that you did in, in Mayfair and Holland Park, and they really are kind of exquisite properties. And, and, and I think one of the, the terms used was opulence, um, which, which certainly kind of describes, describes them well. What, what, what are maybe some of the numbers on those? So I'm sure people are interested to know what it, what it costs to refurb a, a sort of a, a prime London flat and per square foot, what sort of money were you putting in? Um, I'll, I'll,
0: I'll give you an idea. Um, the, best, the best week I ever had in property was in about 2007. Where I had the flat in Chelsea Harbour and the flat in Camden Hill Gate, both of them I sold in the same week and sold them and made about five million pounds in one week. Now these these two these two flats, literally I spent about four hundred pounds a square foot on. So Camden Hill bought it for two and a half million. Um, we were probably all in for about three point eight, and then I had to pay out my um, equity investors, mm-hmm. so I was at four point five, and then I sold it for six point five. Wow. And then my Chelsea Harbour flat was again; it was around four hundred pounds a square foot. So yeah, I, I bought that for about one point nine. and Sold it for about four point six. Wow, huge yeah, numbers
1: for flats as well. Pe- people in the in the sort of in the north might be thinking, "What on earth is going on? Where a flat costs this much?" <laughs> but yeah, we're we're talking about very very <laughs> prime London here. And who who were what would have been the um, I suppose, the avatar, who, who were the type of people that were buying these properties?
0: Uh, the, the flat in Chelsea Harbour was the um, Smirnofokker family. Um, the, one in, um, the one in Camden Hill was a Russian that I actually didn't ever get to meet him because he was so high profile. Um, you know, We got a lot, lot of people, very, very wealthy. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, one thing I've learned in life is that when you're making so much money and you're young, you're running around thinking that everything's just so amazing You may be a little bit too arrogant, but as time's gone on and since I've hit the lows and I'm slowly coming back now, I've learned to be nice, humble, respectful to everybody. And you know, when I see these arrogant younger people telling me how to do properties and run the property business and being flash, I think to myself, this is not the way to behave. (laughs) And honestly, losing all this money has made me much better person. And now I've learned my mistakes and going forward, I'm now going to be making a lot more money because I know what to do and what to look yeah. out for.
1: And with a le- less risk as well, I imagine.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: How did you find those deals then? How did Because obviously the crash has just happened. There's no liquidity in the market. What gave you the confidence that that was the right time to get out there and that there was still good margins for those deals?
0: Do you know, uh, after the crash, obviously, you know, there was a lot of opportunities out there, yep. uh, a lot of deals to be had, a lot of people couldn't get funded. And, you know, these opportunities, I would find them and then I would take them to, to investors or brokers who know investors mm-hmm. and put my portfolio together and say, look, I need some investment. And that's what they did. They just came in and invested. But I'm very good, as I said, at finding deals because property sources, banks, different people will contact me because they know I've got... A, Large, large sort of pool of money of investors, funds, family offices, and high net worths.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, um, so in terms of the London, the prime London market, which is obviously your kind of specialty, what what are your thoughts about now? What's going on with that market at the moment? Because I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's all sorts of stuff. We've got um, the foreign buyers that I imagine make up quite a large chunk of of the. Uh, of that market are not able to kind of come over here. So, what, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think at the moment the market is primarily being propped up by uh,
0: Hong Kong buyers at the moment. Okay. You know, yeah, because I mean, obviously with these passports, then coming over, being allowed to go into the UK, they want to get their money out of Hong Kong. I think a lot of all the new builds, especially, are being bought by Hong Kong purchasers. I think if you look at the Middle Easterns and the Russians, for example, they're, they're not really walking the streets of London looking at properties because they're scared, you know, come over because of COVID. And I think the Middle Eastern money is parked at the moment and they're not spending. And I think it's the same with the Russians as well.
1: And that Middle Eastern and Russian money probably, am I right in thinking that that made up a, a large portion of that prime market maybe for the last sort of six, seven years?
0: Most definitely, most definitely. And I think you'll find that a lot of, a lot of money now is going out to places like Surrey, Um, you know, the outsides of London affluent areas because they want gardens. They don't want to be in central London.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So where do you think then opportunities are in terms of of Prime London?
0: Well, I always always think, you know, stay in the golden triangle of Prime Central London Mm. and just try and find the deals. But as I said, there's so many people after them. You've got so, you know, you've got it all advertised on all of these websites, all the properties. Um, It's not like before where somebody bring you a deal and nobody would really know about it. Here, everything's been sent out, everybody knows about it, and there's about 14 people bidding on it, and it's sealed bids. It's quite difficult, but we did win a sealed bid last week, when, uh, something in the King's Road, which is quite good. Brilliant. Yeah, so you can win the sealed bids sometimes.
1: Fantastic. And so what are you looking to do then over the next couple of years? I'm basically looking to get back into developing, like I was before
0: in a big way, I'm just looking to really work with one person or one high net worth or one fund or one family office mm-hmm. where I can just do what I'm good at developing prime central London flats yeah. and houses. Yeah. Um, also brokering deals at the moment as well to family offices again. Um, we just put a bid on something recently for 22 million. You know, it's, 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 that's what I want to do development, but brokering deals is also exciting as well because yeah. if you're doing the high end ones, you can make some good money out of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And obviously you've got the skill set behind you to understand those, those areas very, very well as well. So for our listeners, what advice would you give to them if they're looking at scaling your business based on what, what you've been through?
0: Well, don't over-leverage for a start. Do not um, you see when I say over leverage. You know, don't go to 80 percent, for example. Be around 65 percent if you have a portfolio of flats, because if the market moves, you will be you will suffer. You will you'll be burnt.
1: Because some, I guess, some people would say, look, the quickest way, or the quickest, the most efficient ways to scale a business are one to take on more risk, so more leverage, or two, put more effort in. And sometimes there's only a certain amount of effort you can put in. Um, what, what are some of the ways then in which you, you would suggest they, they look at scaling? And are people maybe trying to scale too quickly? Um, and do they understand? That's the, problem. Yeah.
0: That's the problem. If you're scaling too quickly and you become too greedy and you're leveraging to get more money out, to do more deals, and growing too quickly then again you know it's like a domino effect it all falls down when the market turns
1: it's a bit of a house of cards isn't it you're creating your own ponzi that's kind of good to keep feeding that beast um yeah yeah
0: so take is what i'm saying is take take it slowly develop the right product buy at the right price buy in the right area and then sell and then move on do another one don't try and do three four five six in one go Because I was doing 17, 18 in 2008 in in one go, and it was just too much at the time. So manage your expectations. Just do one or two at a time and start that way. And don't go too fast. That's what I would say.
1: Great advice. And what would you say, obviously that's one lesson, but are there any other kind of big lessons that you feel that you've learned that you're taking on kind of as, as as you're...
0: Oh yes, I've learned many lessons, sir. Many lessons, (laughs) Mr. Rod. I've learned many lessons. Let me just say this one: Um, you need to be checking out. Builders always try and rip you off. They always try and rip you off. Every little thing. Like so, we're trying to put a staircase in my one of my Chelsea flats. Oh, listen, mate, it's forty-two thousand staircase. I was like, when I went and checked it out, it was like twenty thousand for the staircase. So you have to check all your costs and every builder, no matter how nice they are to you. You know, they try and be your friend. You have to check costs and be thorough and get lots of quotes in and really, really clamp down on your costs to make money. Definitely. That's key.
1: And uh, what would you say now, moving forward, bearing all that in mind, are the biggest risks to your business moving forward? And what are you doing to mitigate them? Well,
0: as I mean, going forward, buying again, developing again, you need to be buying at the right rates, right interest rates, borrowing rates. You need to work with a bank that will work with you through the good times and the bad times. Mm-hmm. Not one that's just going to jump on you as soon as there's, oh, you haven't sold this for six months? Okay, now I'm going to point LPA receivers. You need to work with somebody who's understanding. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, as I said before, you need to be buying in the right locations. That is key as well. Mm-hmm.
1: And Paul, one last question then that I ask everyone What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you in business? Um,
0: I was working with my partner who was a, he's like my best friend as well for a little while. And when I hit really hard times, he lent me all of his money, every penny. And he literally, I think about it every day that I want to pay him back. I started slowly paying him back, but I want to pay him back all the money that I owe him. And that's the kindest thing anybody's ever done.
1: Fantastic. So, Paul, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what is the best way uh, that they can contact you? Maybe they're looking at Prime London, maybe they're interested in putting some capital behind you and some of your developments. What's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, they, they, they can email me. Do you want me to give you my email? Well, what we'll do is we'll put uh, we'll put a link on the show notes. So, if anyone's interested in contacting Paul... We'll have a link there for his email address on on the show notes. So thanks so much, Paul. That's been really, really interesting, fascinating story and, and really inspiring as well. I just wanted to say um, I was so excited about speaking
0: to you today that I woke up at five thirty this morning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I'm exhausted now. I'm exhausted. The, the feeling's mutual. At least you get to go and enjoy the sun where you are. unlike like uh, I'm like where I am, which um, which isn't far away from from where your first flat was actually. I've got to say. Thank you, Rod, and I really appreciate it. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Thanks so much, Paul. If you enjoy the broadcast, please don't forget to give us an iTunes review. There's a link in the show notes to do that. It just helps other listeners find our podcast. And if you're interested in what any of our guests do, please look into the show notes for their details. Also, if you're interested in the property businesses that I'm involved in or in my consultancy services, please do contact me via the email. You guessed it. It's in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any new episodes as they come out. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed it.